Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today for the third episode in our postmodern conservative series, I am joined by political writer and pundit and Reagan biographer after a sort, Henry Olson. Sir, thank you very much for joining me and please introduce yourself first of all for our audience and let's talk some electoral politics. Sure. Uh, I'm Henry Olson. I am a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, which is a think tank in Washington, D.C., and an editor at unheard.com. And I write for a number of publications, including American Greatness, National Review, and my work's been appearing a lot in the Washington Post recently. You span quite a gamut from the new publications of people who mostly favor to people who mostly oppose Donald Trump because you have a degree of expertise that's simply recognized in these various venues, irrespective of a partisan affiliation, which is quite impressive. <laughs> well, thank you. I try to actually say what I think rather than hew to a party line, and I guess you know I can publish in uh, Trump-friendly publications like American Greatness and uh, known uh, center-left uh, publications like The Guardian, but that's about as wide as I can expect. Yes, indeed. Well, sir... We're looking to get your thoughts across to a new digital audience and also to offer people a bit of an electoral history and electoral demographics over the last couple of elections. So let's start with 2014. That's when I first started following your work. And that, I believe, is when you started publishing your theory of the various factions on the Republican and now the Democrat side as well. I, I actually wrote an article in 2011 for National Affairs that um, was kind of a trial run on my ideas about the Republican Party, but I refined those and the essay that defined those views for me was published in uh, 2014 in The National Interest. Yes, I mean, what was going on in 2014, uh, there's two things. You had the ongoing battle between left and right, which uh, were continuing to mess up in their opportunity to secure a majority by adhering different types of centrist voters, and the failure of President Obama to capitalize on his 2012 re-election set up what was actually a quite good day for Republicans that, once again, blue-collar swing voters, uh, the people who I've now labeled tigers, Trump is great Republicans, moved away from backing Obama. Obama, which they did in 2012, to backing Republicans, and that helped deliver a large gain for Republicans across the board. Yes, that was the biggest victory for Republicans in a long, long time. In some ways, really, they had a dominance unseen since the Civil War. 33 governorships, 69 legislative chambers. There's extraordinary numbers. And, of course, at the federal level, they managed to win the Congress, which they had lost eight years previously, and in a way announced a kind of delayed wave. Now, it seems to me through that since 1994 and the big Republican wave, wave elections have been more common than they had been in the generation before. But this was an unusual thing. In 2010, the House. In 2012, Republicans lost, however, the presidency. And then in 2014, they took the Senate leading to the vast victories later in 2016 that put Republicans in charge of all of the federal government. <laughs> in some yeah. strange way, it seems to have been 2014 to have been the big announcement for this transformation of coalitions and its effect on the federal government. In one sense, we've been going through a slow motion transformation since 1964 
that as early as 1969, the perspicacious and ahead of his time political commentator Kevin Phillips noted that historical Republican margins among uh, Protestants in high-income areas was going down after the Goldwater victory, whereas Republican margins in blue-collar Catholic areas was going up. And what's been going on ever since has been kind of a slow-motion move of high-income, college-educated voters towards the Democratic Party and middle to middle-low income workers who historically belonged to unions or were sympathetic to the Democratic Party moving to the Republicans. In 2016 and 2018, it was an acceleration of those trends, which may finally have shaken out, depending on what happens in both parties, a final realignment. There aren't too many voters left whose views seem unaligned with their parties. And that creates an interesting situation where Republicans may not have a popular majority, but they may very well have a Senate and Electoral College majority because of where the people who have moved live. Yes, indeed. And that's partly to do with the trend you mentioned. It is also the case that Americans have been segregating simply by electoral choice so that the number of landslide counties in America, counties where elections are decided by 20 points, has tripled from around 6 to around 20 over the last generation. So it seems that indeed America is finding a new equilibrium. And I think it's very important to mention these turns in advance because they paradoxically coexist with shocking changes in Congress and in the policies expected out of the executive as well. Despite these changes in society and demographics and their electoral consequences, elections keep producing strange majorities that disappear almost as soon as they're created, as with the Republican and then Democrat majorities in the noughts. And the new majority of Republicans in the second decade might vanish electorally in another election. We lived through, and not just in the United States, and most of the developed democratic world, very relatively stable politics from the end of the Second World War until the dawn of the 21st century. Organized around a left-right or in Europe a left-right center axis where, with very few exceptions, shares of the vote differed minimally, new parties were discouraged and rarely came up. You know, there are always exceptions to that, but that was the general rule. And in the 21st century, that has all come apart. And my argument is that's come apart because the questions that people wanted answered back then are different than the questions people want to answer today. And politics, co- political coalitions and or political parties always shift in democracies to meet voter demand. So what you have in America today is a left-right two-party system that responded to answer certain questions that no longer responds. So you have coalitions and people moving between the parties, but because the parties' bases are still dominated by the old left-right distinction, the new people who move, even as they feel more comfortable in the new party, they don't feel totally comfortable, so they remain fluid. And that makes election waves much more possible as one slightly attracted group becomes disenchanted with the party they move to. They move back to the other side. They get disenchanted with that. They move back. And you have these sort of tsunamis that keep swamping each party's base. And yet the bases seem not to learn. And that opens up the prospect for even more destabilization in the next decade unless somebody gets their act together. Yes, and that seems to be the main source of uncertainty as to what will happen in various elections despite our long-term trends. Now, 
I think that you make a very good point here that our political culture, like our culture more broadly, is lagging far behind events. And people in various ways seem to live mired in nostalgia, both at the level of policy and at the level of discourse, and even in terms of the technologies of political communication they are interested in using to reach voters. So we need updating, not just clarifying. But Yeah, very much so. I mean, you take a look at... Um very little that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said, uh, says in her Twitter feeds or her interviews would have been unfamiliar to people on the political left 60 years ago. I mean, they wouldn't have talked about a Green New Deal, but they would have talked about uh, another approach, uh, another justification by which the political entities take uh, control of the commanding heights of the economy. And similarly on the right, uh, that when uh, used to be that people would argue about the constitutionality of the New Deal and social insurance programs, and now you have people on the right essentially arguing uh, to dramatically cut them back on affordability reasons, but it's the same argument, which is a discomfort uh, with the existence of the modern social insurance state on the right that would be completely at home with Herbert Hoover from 1932. And when you've got a vast middle that sees elements of truth in both sides, but doesn't want to embrace either, but yet that's what they're continually offered, then you have growing frustration. And in Europe, that frustration is creating new political parties. Um, but in the United States, with our system, it's creating massively unstable political parties. You know, that we actually have multiple political parties within our two-party system, but we don't recognize them because our system doesn't allow them to develop. And that means that we effectively have very dysfunctional government. Yes, indeed. And so as there is a problem with the base of or the activists who are in strange ways caught in the past, so we also have a problem with political elites, whether it's consultants or donors or, of course, people elected to office. It's strange how little politicians are trying to make something of the changes that are obvious in America and how little either party is trying to come up with any kind of majority coalition. The election of 2014, I think, revealed part of that, that the Democrats didn't really have anything to say or anything to do. It was historically low turnout for one. And for another, the Obama years were exhausted and there was no idea of what the future of the Democrat Party might mean. And that paralyzed the party in some ways, preparing them for the losses in 2016. But in a strange way, that's what it did for the Republicans too, so far as I can tell. The Republican victory of 2014, in to the extent to which it prepared victories in 2016 for the party as opposed to Trump, it also reassured Republicans they don't have to do anything. They don't have to come up with any new ideas. That's absolutely right. That, uh, you know... The, the... One would have thought, and I thought, that after Trump's victory, it would spark thinking in all the traditional precincts of the right. Instead, they're treating it as some sort of aberration that will, an annoyance that will someday soon go away. Uh, and they're going, they're continuing to govern as if, uh, 2016's 
voter demographic changes never happened and are easily reversible. And I think the Democrats uh, vastly underestimate the dangers that they have, you know, that they just want a majority in the House because millions of people who hadn't voted for them in a while came back uh, across the board. But they're not progressives. You know, that uh, it may be that they can hold this coalition against Trump for one more election, but then you'll be back to the same score, which is with Trump out of the way, these people want something completely different than most of the types of voters in the Democratic coalition. Unless the Democrats adapt, you're setting up the possibility of a massive anti-Democratic wave in 2022 as these voters who don't like Trump but aren't progressive Democrats turn around and say, well, now that we got the guy, now we got the, you know, the guy we don't like out of the way, we're coming home. And unless one of the two party bases wakes up, you know, what I think is going to happen is a greater instability and a greater chance of somebody being uh, elected or a new party forming uh, out of uh, these, this discontent. Yeah, so in a strange way, the most important thing about the 2016 elections was that people who kind of hated their parties and who were kind of hated by the party elites ended up almost taking over, in the case of Bernie Sanders, the Democrats, and actually taking over, in the case of Trump, the Republicans and elites in both parties reacted with a kind of paralysis. Democrats were shockingly stuck in this idea that the brand new political news of the post-Obama era is the hot stars of 1988 and 1992, the Clintons. That's a nutty idea in politics, especially for a party that's trying to represent changing demographics and the young. But that's how right, the elites reacted. But this is a problem for the center-left of the Democratic Party, that the Democratic Party's... Uh, base is increasingly left uh, based on uh, um, people who form around some form of identity politics or some form of economic redistributionism. And they, these groups often overlap, but they also have a bit of an alliance. And um, what's going to happen to the center left if and when they find that they can no longer command majorities within their uh nominating systems you've already you're already seeing it at other at the lower levels uh and uh, but the fact is they've always almost always been able to win the presidential uh nomination well what happens if they lose the presidential nomination this time um what happens when they feel as out of home in their party as the uh, never trumpers do in the republican or if they don't then they have to accept a second tier status where they will be the people providing votes and money for policies that uh, they actually don't think are very good yeah so in a strange way the centrists or the more liberal less progressive faction is looking forward to minority status primarily as punishment for the fact that Trump followed Obama and that Hillary failed to beat him. That was the big chance of the center-left, and it was utterly squandered. And what's worse, it was squandered in a way that humiliated and angered the progressive uh, left-wing of the Democrat Party. And uh, so it does seem like this party too is ripe for change, not for any kind of consolidation, despite its recent victory in 2018. And on the Republican side, 2016 seems to have led the Republicans to think that they're not going to do anything new. Their grand big idea 
was the great politics of 1980 or of 2001, another tax cut. And indeed, the stuff they were talking about all the time, like repealing Obamacare, turns out to have been a great big political lie, however useful it may have been to get votes for so many years since 2010. And so we ended up with this strange 2018 elections with historical highs in an off-year, non-presidential election, some 50% turnout, and nevertheless, no clarification, more divided government, and more separation of the country. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what happened. And, you know, I've said and written, I believe I've written, I know I've said, that if you take a look at the Senate seats that the Republicans picked up, um, in most of those states, if the vote had only taken place in the cities, the Democrats would not have lost. The reason they lose is because of a very strong swing in rural areas. Uh, and what that means is that the Democrats continue, even in this massive wave, to be uncompetitive in the areas of the country that elect a majority of the Senate. Uh, and that means we're moving towards more, not less, divided government, more, not less, gridlock. Uh, and neither party seems capable of addressing this. Yeah, uh, to look forward slightly to 2020, since people are already announcing their run for the presidency, it seems like most of the people in the Democrat Party are very old, and most of them are former defeated if or, or uh, non-entities. And it's although it's, I suppose, uh, Senator Kamala Harris has a very good shot at the nomination, the others are unimpressive. It seems like the party, for all its massive shakeup, all the losses in 2010, all the victories in 2018, doesn't have a new generation that's willing to run for office. Well, you know, running for president is always a uh, culmination of a political career, or if not a culmination, it's, you have to build to get there. So you're not uh, you're not going to find very many people who jump in uh, very quickly after running for uh, for office. Uh, however. Um, I, you do have the three front runners of being, Joe Biden's been in office for 46 years. Bernie Sanders has been in office at all levels nearly as long. Elizabeth Warren is a newcomer, but she too is quite, uh, elderly. Well, not elderly, but she's, uh, over, I think she'll be close to 70 when the election actually takes place. And that's a very, we're in a party that's increasingly young and non-white to have three old white people as your front runners suggests to me that none of them are going to end up being the nominee that the party will find somebody whether it is a you know somebody like a Kamala Harris or a Cory Booker or a Beto O'Rourke somebody who is closer in age and temperament to the party center and that is going to shock the Democratic elites, who still largely tend to be uh, people in that older, whiter um, uh, demographic who think another one of their own is uh, likely to win. Yeah, 
part of the demographics we haven't touched on yet is the upcoming elections will be the last big thing decided by baby boomers. And it does seem like their only political ideas are social security Americans, to not say elderly or anything like that. And uh, that's increasingly untenable. So it's a strange thing to see that over the massive transformations we've seen demographically and in electoral demographics, we have seen nothing by way of candidates who in the political wars of the last 10 years prepared for this future at any point. It's quite amazing. Uh, we have a massive political failure, not just here in the United States, but across the West, where uh, people are, are finding it difficult to reevaluate their old paradigms, but people with new paradigms are not winning fast enough to displace them. Uh, and uh, until one or the other thing happens, you know, we will see continued political instability as people try to come up with old answers to new questions, and that just doesn't work. Yes, indeed. And it does seem like it's a vast problem that affects countries way beyond America and that it's not going away. You had a very astute recent article for Unheard about the counter-revolution, so to speak, the establishment reaction in various countries in Europe and, of course, in America to this, this new populist wave. Yeah, and that was a piece that I just wrote yesterday in the Washington Post talking about that. Um, and that's a sign of the weakness of the old order, that the center-left and the center-right increasingly are coming together. Um, and doing so not with a vision for the future, but to actually keep out a vision of the future that they find fearful. Uh, but eventually that's not going to work, uh, because eventually you're going to have to come to grips with that problem. That We saw this in Italy, where 20 years of stagnation coupled with uh, large migration from poorer countries in the EU uh, met with wave after wave of uh, populist revolt and declining vote share among the traditional center-left and center-right parties until the election last year where um, between the Lega party and M5S uh, and some other smaller parties, the old parties that used to command 80% of the vote got less, well less than a majority. And since then they've dropped even further as voters have flocked the, to new parties, providing new answers to new problems. Um, and we see the same in France with Emmanuel Macron, who is basically, for all of his attempt to be a reformist, is somebody who is using his majority to impose the views of the West Parisian elite on the rest of the country. And not surprisingly, they are literally revolting every Saturday that Tens of thousands of people show up to protest and have been doing so for two and a half months. And he's remired in poll ratings that are significantly lower than Donald Trump's. Um, and that's because trying to an impose old answers on new problems without accommodating any of the new circumstances is just ripe for failure in a democratic system. Yes, indeed. And Emmanuel Macron is especially a good example because he's such a young guy and he was supposed to be such a bright, new, non-partisan hope. And instead, he collapsed from meteoric popularity to abysmal popularity faster than any president in France in decades or indeed any leader 
elected to office in our developed democracies. It won't do. It's just not enough to get another messenger if the message is the same. Mm-hmm. And, and he 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 never made um, a secret of what he wanted to do. Um, but what's been to me quite striking is how unable he is to adapt in any way to political circumstance, which again is a hallmark of an elite that has a tin ear, that amidst an economic program that effectively is forcing middle and working class France to give up security and take on risk. He adds a gasoline tax for the sole purpose of virtue signaling on climate change. You know, no one thinks that 25 cents a euro added on to taxes that are already over three euros a liter uh, or three euros a gallon uh, is going to save the planet. Uh, But it is enough to tip people who are already struggling, who are already taking the brunt of his policies to say, this is the straw that breaks our, uh, the back. You're finally going to have to listen to us. But that's, you know, when reform means the majority must lose wealth and the minority that has done well needs to accumulate more of it, you shouldn't expect a democratic system to go along with that. Yeah, and I think that this shows to what extent our elites would rather die on principle than prudently represent the people whose votes they are actually asking for. The number of young politicians whose careers have been destroyed or are about to be destroyed, or new, not necessarily young politicians, who seem utterly unwilling to change with the changing times, is quite staggering and it does suggest that the conflict between the populist revolutions and the counter-revolutions in establishments are going to get messier not cleaner that's yes that's exactly what i think is that uh you know i'll take a look at what's going on in europe and what's going on here and you have a large degree of of dissatisfaction um during a period of peace and prosperity I mean, not every country in Europe is as prosperous as others, and the ones that have endured slowest and least uh, well-shared growth tend to have the highest levels of dissatisfaction. But imagine what happens if we plunge into a worldwide recession. Uh, Everything we know from political history suggests that uh, recessions uh, and uh, deeper depressions uh, increase the demand for political change. And the more radical the drop, the more radical the change. And if you see in parties, parties of the old order, barely hanging on with majorities now, imagine what happens when every country has gone through five years uh, that's similar to the last 20 that Italy's gone through. These people aren't going to know what hit them. And it's going to look a lot, I think we look a lot more like France in 1787. Uh, you can see all the signs of weakening, but the court doesn't want to reform enough, fast enough. Uh, then we look like America of uh, 1789. Yeah, it does seem like in a completely unpredicted way, we have returned to very serious politics where massive changes could come in shocking because unpredictable ways. Our elites have failed 
at every level, they fail to represent their electorate, they fail to predict what economic, technological, social changes are going to do and how to deal with it, and they fail even to legitimate themselves even if they win elections. And so we see throughout the West, even when our elites keep winning elections, as in France and Germany to an extent in England, the center keeps getting smaller and smaller and has a smaller and smaller majority. Mm-hmm. No, that's exactly what's happening. I'm, I'm trying to find a tweet by David Frum, who's a very smart man, but very much a defender of uh, of the elite order, you know, of the established order. And he put something up uh, recently, which I, I, I'm having a hard time finding. Um, I might have uh, the wrong tweet, but he basically said that uh, that the West has undergone a lot of shocks in the last 15 years. And he starts listing them: you know, Iraq, the Great Recession, the uh, housing crisis, the Merkel migration, and he says, "But you know, maybe uh, you know this is like." Around World War One and the Progressive Era, and after that, there was a return to normalcy. You know, with the election of Warren Harding, maybe that'll happen in 2020. And you know, it, the fact is, every single one of those shocks occurred because of elite miscalculation. Nowhere in the world have the elites either admitted or atoned for those mistakes, with the possible exception of Merkel, who has granted that she may have acted too hastily or in the wrong manner with respect to her migration. And consequently, the idea that people are going to return to some degree of normalcy, normalcy defined as, oh, well, we're going to stop being upset at the elites who caused all these problems, is delusional. It's wish-hoping for people who want to avoid dealing with the real problems. And um, that doesn't mean that you can't put stitch together a coalition of of the elite, but it means that they have no vision to do anything because they don't understand what's going on. They think all of these things happened by happenstance, and uh, things will just go back as if they had never happened. That's not the case. Just not the case. Yeah, so like it or not, a crisis is coming because to a large extent our elites have ended up believing in a strangely sophisticated idea that you can rule by speeches. That the speeches of charismatic politicians and the speeches of journalistic intellectual elites transmitted into popularity by television were going to lead to a great success and indeed in the case of Obama he would extend TV elite dominance into social media and Tech corporations in Silicon Valley and social media are his friends, so it's going to get better. And that was going to continue the center-left version of the liberal ideal from electoral victory to electoral victory. And it turned out that that's not true. That people are... They just had enough of these ideas and they would like different ideas and perhaps different people because they might not be able to trust the people who are already famous the politicians of celebrity who've made careers over the last generation. All of these policies that were adopted uh, were supposed to produce a world without losers. 
um, that technologically we were supposed to progress in a way so that everyone shared, uh, that socially we were supposed to progress in a way so that everyone felt included, global politics, uh, we didn't think that there was going to arise any sort of serious challenge to Western dominance, and so consequently we could easily uh, start making China a world power because, of course, they were going to change their political system uh, to accommodate uh, us. In every case, the elites were wrong. Some people were included in social life in the West who had been on the margins before, but at the price of pushing people who used to be at the center to the margins with the fear that they'll be shunted even further to the margins. Economically, many people were enriched, but others were made worse off or you know, forced to work harder for the same amount. And geopolitically, it's quite obvious now that China has no intention of becoming a Western liberal democracy, or even a benign Singaporean autocratic uh, democracy. They are going to pursue their own system because they want to have global um, equality or superiority. And in each case, the elites made a big calculation. In each case, they were wrong. And yet, they're, they seem unwilling or unable to look and say, wow, Maybe the people who uh, were discomfited by this have some have something to say and add to the discussion. Yeah, we'll have to see how that works. We do not have new politicians yet, but we do have mounting evidence, as you pointed out, on both domestic and foreign policy in both America and in Europe, that everything that has been assumed hitherto, the end of history, to put it in Hegel's phrase, that was popular among our elites in the 90s, is not happening that in fact what we bet on uh, elite rule coupled with technological improvement has not worked out partly because we don't have that much technological improvement partly because it doesn't help that many americans and partly because technology is no longer believably the friend of freedom or democracy or america the chinese are about as technological as we are an economy that's about our size and growing apparently more reliably, although it's hard to know, but certainly it's no longer the case that technology helps freedom, that the internet is going to make us all like each other better and be globalized, united friends. And that's a hard shock for people who bet on all this to deal with. Old Democrat politicians, as much as the boy billionaire Mark Zuckerberg, are completely flat-footed whether it comes to dealing with China or dealing with anger from American constituencies. Politics is endemic to the human condition, and politics includes disputes over ways of life. It includes disputes over status and power. It this includes disputes over uh, the allocation of resources. And the famous end of history essay, which uh, was, uh, if you read it closely, was actually almost ironic as opposed to serious, uh, but uh, certainly echoed a view of many that we were, we had surmounted politics. The human condition had evolved to, to, in a way, so we no longer had to have politics. We could have mere administration. And what has happened is that the reassertion of human nature, which had never gone away but was overlooked or shunted aside, is what we are seeing, is the disputes over the things that 
people have always disputed about as long as we know that there was history. And in elites, an elite that is in touch with its humanity could see this and could react in ways that continue their viability or continue their relevance. But what we see across the board is that they tend not to. They tend to want to think that history has ended and that they are the winners. Um, and one suspects that this is not going to turn out well for them, and it'll turn out less well in some countries than others. Yeah. As you, a refugee from Romania, know full well what I mean. Yes, indeed. And of course, Eastern Europe is far more aware than any other part of our democratic West about how perishable democracy actually is. Although it shouldn't be forgotten that without American victory in World War II, there would be no democracy in anywhere else in the world. So <laughs> we have taken too much for granted for too long. Indeed, the victory of America in World War II that led to mid-century liberalism seems to have given people ideas about politics, about political communication, about consensus and about institutions that are completely un-American and that have all been destroyed since the 90s by a series of shocks that keeps mounting, goes unresolved, and nevertheless finds people unwilling to look at it or deal with it. So all these delusions are going to have to go out with a bang or with a whimper, but one way or the other, this is not <laughs> sustainable, as our progressive friends would say. I, I would like uh, – I believe that in many countries we will have a democratic adaptation. Countries where democracy has stronger roots can uh, sustain uh, significant regime change while maintaining uh, ordered liberty. But those with less roots in democracy – or those with elites that are incredibly intransigent may not be so lucky, um, and uh, I would I am I would dearly hope that um, a number of these places adapt sooner rather than later, because ordered liberty, as we saw from the transition from les from the laissez-faire 19th century to the social democratic 20th century, uh, ordered liberty can uh, maintain a lot of uh, degrees of freedom and happiness that alternatives just can't no matter no matter how unacceptable they might appear in the outset yes so we do see a return of democracy and of politics in critical forms but they might endanger actually the possibility of a decent life they certainly make for great political strife that we no longer even think we're prepared for or can acknowledge but we'll have to learn and perhaps we will learn there are there are sobering signs and people must eventually notice them. The easy assumption that everybody wants to be a liberal elite and that everybody can get there sooner rather than later even is gone. The China is not trying to be America or even America's friend. This is a conflict that in one way or another will continue for more than a generation. America looks weak and like it doesn't care about foreign policy anymore, and the EU looks much worse still. So the even the reputation of democracy around the world, which was based on American power, is itself going down. 
Political regimes evolve to meet political demands. And there are certain things about the human character that seem to make a liberal democratic capitalism um, unusually durable among the regimes that history has seen people adopt. But that doesn't mean that it is immune to politics because it's not immune to human nature. People will not suffer a regime that denies them the things that they care most about, physical security, personal dignity, relative comfort. Liberal democratic capitalism seems to provide all of these to a greater degree than any other regime type that we have ever had. But if what you do is create an order by the people who rule that decreases physical security, that exiles uh, people to the margins, and that uh, creates a caste system uh, where some people benefit from the gains and others are effectively created, are effectively more and more pushed into modern serfdom. You should not expect those people to go lightly. And then you have to make a choice. You know, either those people will rule and they will change the regime, uh, hopefully in a way like the rise of the workers in 20th century changed the regime in a way that enhanced liberal democratic capitalism rather than destroyed it. Um, or you will have to throw away democracy. And you'll have to choose, say that some form of a liberal capitalist order cannot rely on democracy and consequently has to rely on force. And that introduces the problems of instability that a force-based regime inherently provides and that history tells us um, is very difficult to sustain in the face of um, sustained uh, uh, discontent. Yes, our order is essentially liberal, individualistic, based on technology and commerce. But our politics is Democrats. We all think we're equal. We know we all have the same human nature. Now, so far, liberalism and democracy have worked well together, especially in America. In Europe, they have always been in conflict, of course, but mostly worked out, except for the world wars. But even in America now, liberalism and democracy do not seem to be friends anymore. Maybe they can be made friends but it's not going to be easy. There are indeed great resources to be called on, but it's also a fact, I think, of hu American history and of human nature, of course, that crisis will bring out the resources for stability and for a new political equilibrium that helps, even fosters, the possibility of people to live decent lives. It's not going to come pretty. No, it, 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 change never does come pretty. We tend to forget how contentious the politics and society was in the late 19th, early 20th century. Assassinations of czars, of presidents, of, of leaders, you know, uh, violence in the streets as nascent labor unions were being suppressed by the established order. Um, but eventually, because there was a commitment to democracy in many of the Western countries, equilibrium was reached. Yes. And perhaps this is and perhaps this is the greatest advantage of our liberal democracies. We have regimes that have successfully recycled elites. When one series of elites outstays its welcome, it tends to be thrown out and others replace it. And perhaps it is time for this to happen once again. And, that's, and then there's the question of, are the new elites um, 
trying to reform the liberal democratic order or are they trying to replace it? You know, the current elites tried to tell us that the people, the new elites are inherently anti-democratic. There are certainly elements in some areas of these uh, new elites that are problematic. But by and large, I would say that the evidence suggests they're largely democratic, that they are more like social democratic and labor movements of the early 20th century that seek to reform in order rather than the fascist or communist um, organizations in the mid-1930s and 1920s that sought to replace the system. But it's always better if uh, it's always better to bend rather than break. And the more a established order accommodates the legitimate demands of these new forces, the likelier it is that the system is resilient. The more that the question is resist, the more likely it is that when change happens, it comes with a break. And when things comes with a break, we should not presume that anything from the prior system will be retained. Yes, this is a sobering note to end on, but I think it's a necessary one. We're looking forward to elections again in 2020, and beyond that, a political realignment that will change the parties, not just the demographics. And yeah, I mean, America is very stable. I mean, its politics are unstable, but commitment to the underlying order is very stable. I am least worried about a non-democratic counter counter revolution in the United States. Um, it's not to discount its possibility, but what's going to happen um, in a country that uh, has experienced uh, you know, non-democratic regimes within the last century, uh, where there remains some nostalgia for those regimes, where elites are entirely um, discredited. You know, that uh, places like Italy or France, uh, you shouldn't presume necessarily that uh, in times of a break that you're going to see the old order, uh, you know, the, the post World War II order emerge with without serious alteration. Um, yes. Yeah, again, I'd bet against it, but the fact is, in extreme times, people take extreme measures. And if we were having this conversation in 1926, the idea that liberal democracy would be on the defensive worldwide in a decade and would be under vicious assault in 15 years would have been considered fantastic, fantastical, beyond the realm of contemplation. But all of the signs were there. Yes. All of the signs were already present. Perpetual peace is always around the horizon, but the seeds of political chaos are actually already in the ground at every such moment. And the question is, if you can identify that, don't water the seeds and try and find the weed killer. Yes, very well put. Thank you for joining me, sir. Let's do this again sometime soon. I am glad to be able to share your expertise on elections and indeed a worldwide view of the dangers liberal democracy is facing. Thank you for having me on, and I look forward to chatting with you again sometime. All the best, sir. Take care.